It's a destination. We are finally here. Let's go. What is good, everybody? Welcome back. Episode four of Destination Dynasty. As always, I'm your host, Scott Connor at Charles Chill FFB on Twitter. I'm recording this uh, in between the end of the late slate uh, in week seven and before the beginning of the Sunday night football game between the Steelers and the Dolphins. And it's been a hell of a day. Uh, a lot has happened. Uh, the chat has been blowing up over in the Destination Devi Discord. Uh, I've been out watching games all day, but there's been a lot that I'm trying to follow on Twitter, in my Patreon chat, and then also over in the DD Discord. Uh, so again, check any of those out if you are interested uh, in essentially just live action, live chatting, a lot going on in those communities. Uh, it's patreon.com slash dynasty and chill uh, and the Destination Devi Discord, uh, which you can join at patreon.com slash all gas. But I want to start with this, uh, just with the... Brees Hall news, um, as everybody may have heard or seen, um, unless you're living under a rock or haven't been able to watch or follow anything online today, uh, it appears that Brees Hall may have torn his ACL. Uh, the initial diagnosis uh, hasn't been confirmed yet, but Robert Sally said after the game uh, that it was a significant injury uh, and they are fearing an ACL injury. He went down on a run to the left side, uh, went down, uh, walked off the field, but then was immediately put on a cart. Uh, and then immediately ruled out a couple minutes later. So there really wasn't any sort of time in between. Uh, it was a pretty quick rule out. And then there's been multiple people that have been speculating what the injury was. So after the game, uh, Robert Sally mentioned that they fear that it's a significant injury and an ACL injury. So what does that mean? We've talked about this a lot in the Discord. I've talked about this on many, many podcasts. Uh, and unfortunately, we're having to talk about it again. And I don't know how many more times we're going to have to talk about it. But this stuff happens. And looking back on the episode that I did in week one, talking about running backs, uh, this is yet another example of a running back that we valued extremely highly after a great start. I think a lot of people, including myself, were Brees Hall's RB1. Like he's going to be the RB1. Now he's already producing like the RB1 or very close to it. And by the end of the season, there's a really good chance that he was going to be the RB1 just based on you know, how you would move things going forward with Jonathan Taylor going into his fourth year uh, with some of the other running backs continuing to get older. As long as Brees were to, quote unquote, stay healthy and continue to produce, he's by default the RB1 in Dynasty and pretty much already was. Um, I don't think before this week you were able to trade Jonathan Taylor for Brees Hall. In fact, you probably have to add a little bit to Taylor to get Brees Hall. But fast forward, we have this injury. Uh, we're dealing with yet another potential ACL injury. We obviously know nothing about uh, how bad that is. You know, is it just a clean ACL tear? Uh, is there more damage? Is it similar to Javante Williams or even worse, J.K. Dobbins? Uh, we'll definitely let uh, Jeff Mueller, who's our injury specialist, uh, tackle that subject. I'm sure he'll have many thoughts on it. So again, one of the other perks of joining the Discord is you can check out what Jeff has to say. But the bottom line is this. We saw it with J.K. Dobbins. We saw it with Cam Akers. I know that was an Achilles injury. Uh, we saw it with Javante Williams. We've seen it thus far this year. I mean, looking back at that first episode that I talked about the running back production and roster construction, and it's not to say that you can predict that there is an ACL injury coming for a running back. I'm not saying that. 
In fact, I think that's a common misnomer about this strategy is almost like, you know, I'm predicting that there are going to be these injuries. We know injuries are going to happen, but we also know that ACL injuries can happen to really any player at any time. They can happen to really any running back. It doesn't have to be the ones that just happen to be valued really, really highly for Dynasty. But I think the key here is attaching an injury like this to a running back that we are also attaching an extremely high dynasty value to. How do we adjust? If, and I'm going to go through the hypotheticals, because again, it's not fully confirmed yet. You never know. Uh, They may get in there, do an MRI, and they realize it's not an ACL. You know, it's not exactly what they thought it would be, and it could be good news. But just hypothetical, if there is an ACL injury for Brees Hall, and we're probably not going to know before uh, this podcast comes out on Monday morning, uh, how do you treat it? You have a guy that's already valued as a top, probably three or four skill player in dynasty overall. So non-quarterbacks, top five skill player, easily. First round startup pick, RB1. And now potentially is out for the rest of the season. We have no clue what that means for his future in terms of timeline to return. Best case scenario, you know, it's your typical nine months where maybe he's back next summer and he's ready to go at some point during the season. Worst case, you start getting into the Javante Williams timeline where it could be a year. You start getting into the J.K. Dobbins timeline where it's a year plus before he returns to the field. And then there's complications. And it's not just physical complications like Dobbins. It's the complications of, is the team going to trust the player for any appreciable workload, or are they going to ease them in? And I think when you have a player like this, you can't just expect, okay, he's healthy, And thus, he's going to step right back to where he was or where we left off in week seven of 2022. So let's just say we have a pretty standard ACL injury. It's going to impact Brees Hall definitely in the next season. I think more importantly, and I think this is where people start to get a little bit out of whack when it comes to this type of strategy. It's not about that Brees Hall cannot return and be a useful player or a very, very good running back. This is an idea of trying to manage your assets. It's trying to manage your portfolio of assets. You already know that Brees Hall, if he is out for the season, he is a player that is a depreciating asset between now and the end of the season. And when I say depreciating asset, it's not just that his value is going to go down, but he's offering you no production. We see players all the time where their value is going down simply by the day because they're getting older. But if they are offsetting that time difference or that value decrease with production, you can live with it. We see that all the time. We see older players where we go, man, I know the real, real smart move is to probably trade this player because I know their value is going down. At the same time, they're giving me X amount of points and I want those points. So it's a trade-off. You acknowledge that trade-off. You agree with that it's happening, but you still continue just to take the points. And there's a place for that. I always equate it to the example of you go on vacation, you know that you probably should be pragmatic or be conservative with how you spend your money, but you're on vacation. You're like, you know what? I'm having a good time. I have no qualms about splurging a little bit. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to maybe spend some money that I shouldn't, maybe spend some money that I've been saving for something else. It's maybe not a pragmatic decision, but you know what? There are periods during time, during the year, during my life where I'm going to act that way. And it's the same thing in Dynasty. Like there are times where you go, you know what? I have DeAndre Hopkins and I'm pretty sure he's going to get a 30% market share the rest of the year. I'm just going to ride it out. You know, the bang for your buck of what I'm going to get by cashing out on his value at whatever it is, isn't worth the potential points that he's going to score. We make those decisions all the time in Dynasty. In fact, I think a lot of us are constantly making those decisions 
all the time based on where our rosters are. And I think one of the biggest advantages you can have is be able to make those decisions consciously when you have contending teams. When you can look and say, all right, here are my margins. Here's where maybe uh, it's diminishing returns with how many talented players I have on my team or how many points I'm scoring. I can get away with making one of these trades where I trade away a guy like Hopkins on a contender because you know what? I've probably already maximized my odds of maybe winning the championship anyway. I have enough depth. So let me go ahead and make the decision and cash out. We do that all the time. That's essentially what Dynasty is. I think that's why a lot of people uh, like to play the way that I do. It's a lot of people like to follow you know, this type of strategy because it's essentially just managing a pool of assets that are constantly moving around. The supply and the demand is constantly going up and down. And then there's this third factor in there that's essentially, it's not just a market of buyers and sellers, but it's an actual game that's going on the field. That's what's basing the market. That's what people are making their decisions off of. It's no different in Dynasty. So back to Brees Hall. So with Brees Hall, the idea now is you not only have a depreciating asset, you have an asset that's giving you no return on your investment. You potentially have an asset that's going to give you limited return on your investment into next season. But then you also run into potentially for 2023, a player that may carry significant dynasty value, barring that he returns from his injury, but may also not give you the same return on your investment, at least in the short term, at least in year two, in terms of production. So even if Brees Hall were to have a torn ACL, he returns in 10 months, which would put him right around preseason, so end of August, he's ready to play and by week five or week six, he is locked into your lineup and it looks like he might almost be back to 100%. And that's in terms of like health or ability. But does that mean that his situation or his production is going to get any better in the short term? Or is it potentially going to be a year where you kind of deal with these headaches of, well, I'm not sure if they're ever going to give him like a full workload or they're going to do exactly what they did with him this year for the rest of next year, simply because he's coming off a serious injury. And that's almost assuming right now that everything goes as planned. He's back in 10 months. There's no limitations. He's able to ramp up, no setbacks. And then boom, sometime, you know, a year from now, let's just say week seven of next year, you're ready to confidently go, okay, Brees Hall is back. I look at that and say that is almost the best case scenario. I essentially get back maybe to 90% of where I am today, maybe, yet I wasted an entire year with having him on my roster. Uh, It's an asset that maybe it had some trade value, but there was definitely depressed trade value compared to what it was. Uh, But the other thing is there's a lot that can happen that doesn't have that outcome. It could be a 12-month injury. It could be an injury where there is a setback. It could be an injury where the team essentially kind of just babies him for the rest of 2023. Even if he's back, it becomes an even more extreme version of you know, what it was early in the season where him and Michael Carter were essentially splitting works. And it might not even be Michael Carter. I'm guessing it would be because he's still on a rookie contract. But I think the idea is there's a lot of risk now built in. So you're not only taking on a plumbing asset, but you're taking on a lot of risk. There's a lot that can go wrong. And I said this about Cam Akers. I've said this about J.K. Dobbins. I said this about Javante Williams. This timing of this injury happening between year one and year three is the worst time. Look at Brees Hall's value. Look where it went just in a matter of six weeks. 
And this isn't as bad as the others because theirs actually took place before the second year, which almost means it's guaranteed that the second and third year for Dobbins, Cam Akers, you're already seeing that with those two. And then Javante Williams is going to be impacted. And it includes a full missed season in year two, basically, for all of those guys. You know, except for Javante, two games, it was a full missed season for all of them. And then likely an impacted year three. So this isn't as extreme. There's a chance you may be able to thread the needle and not really miss anything more than the rest of the 2022 season for Brees Hall. But I think you have to seriously consider going, okay, this is a significant injury. There's a lot of risk that's banked. Can I cash out? Can I liquidate? And you know what? If you play in a portfolio approach, there's going to be opportunities for you to get Brees Hall back. If you don't play in a portfolio approach, don't you think that maybe you kind of want to be a little more conservative with your assets? If you can get 85, 90% of what Brees Hall was worth before, isn't that something you should consider? Shouldn't you almost take your loss and say, okay, I'd rather lose 15 to 20% versus potentially lose the same amount, but be riding with an asset that really has no flexibility other than trading it to a team that is looking for just depressed assets. And again, if you're not trading him now, you don't sit there and go, well, I plan to trade him here in eight to nine months. There may be a window for that. We saw the window for Dobbins. It was short, but that's still betting on an outcome that you're pointing towards trading him. So I think the idea is to strike now, to strike fast, Uh, We talked about how volatile running back production is week to week, season to season, especially off season to off season, even more, you know, think about everything that could happen between now and next year with the 2023 running back class coming in. Like, I don't necessarily want to just sit back and go, all right, it's tough that Brees Hall is out, but I'm, I'm not going to trade him because of his talent or his ability that we don't really have time, at least the way that I'm going to play this, we don't have time for a running back with a torn ACL, especially one where I know there's going to be many, many trigger points over the next nine to 12 months where I could potentially reinvest at not much more of a cost than probably what you could ship for today. And I think that's the biggest key here. If I told you you have a stock that's worth you know, $1,000 a share, but it had no chance to be worth more than 1025 a year from now, it doesn't really seem like that's the kind of stock you'd want to hold for a year because you're actually losing by the time going by, the year going by, and you're kind of just sitting there with a flat-lined asset. You know, that's not necessarily how we want to play it. So here's my advice, and then we'll move into the quarterback topic. I know this was unplanned, uh, so I'm going to have to kind of make this quarterback topic a little bit shorter uh, than I wanted to, but this was an unplanned thing. I think it's important to talk about a strategy whenever there is a running back like this that goes down with an Achilles or an ACL injury because it may happen again. You know, we kind of joke, well, the next time it happens, I'm just going to sell for a first. But like, no joke, it could happen next week to somebody else. And there's going to have to be a similar line of thinking. You really don't want to have to parse through and say, well, Brees Hall is different than this running back or this running back. I think this is almost like a steadfast strategy that you have to stick to. So here it is. I don't think this is as bad as the Dobbins, Akers, or Javante Williams situation. One, the injury happened earlier. The injury happened uh, in October of his rookie year. So he is definitely well ahead of those other guys, right? Like the Akers injury happened in July of his second year. The Dobbins injury happened in August of his second year. And the Javante injury happened in September of his second year. So this is an injury that happened, you know, nine to 11 months prior 
to those other guys' injuries that took place basically right before or during their second year. This one's a little bit earlier. So there is the recovery timeline that you have on your side. So I think the odds that Brees Hall is impacted in year three uh, are much, much less than Akers, Dobbins, and Javante Williams. So that's the other thing. Like, you're probably going to salvage year three. Pending that he bounces back, you're probably not going to have to wait until year four. And I think we know once a running back gets to year four, especially a guy that was not a first-round pick, it kind of gets a little dicey. You know, you start to get into the territory of, well, you know, he's got some wear and tear under his tires, and I'm not sure I really want to invest it, at least in terms of a high-leverage, high-valued asset. You've already seen it. There's a lot of good running backs right now that you can buy. You can always buy for this exact reason. People are kind of scared that the floor is going to drop out from under them. But really, they start to become just valued at where their production is. And that's it. And you start to see that going into like year four, year five. And that's the big difference. Brees is just going to lose the rest of year one and potentially most, if not all, of year two. So I'm not just going to trade him for any single first. If I can get a 23 first, I'm okay doing it. I think the odds that I can replace Brees Hall one for one is much higher in 2023. A, it's going to be a quicker replacement. B, I actually like this running back class much more in terms of getting one of these guys, even if I get another Ken Walker or I get another Damian Pierce or someone like that. I have a much better shot, I think, in 2023 uh, to do that, especially with the way the running back landscape is looking right now. I'm more than confident that there is going to be numerous options in the same range as those guys coming in next year. So if I can get a 23 first, um, I'm totally open to taking a 23 first for Brees Hall. Ideally, I get a 23 first, and I also get one of these like filler running backs, one of these replacement running backs. Try to get the best one that you can. You're really just looking at that as extra insurance on my Brees Hall, and it's really just a supplement. It's like buying a supplemental insurance plan. You're buying it just to cover basically what you're not going to be able to cover, and that's going to be the rest of the season. And hopefully you get some spot starts out of that running back for the rest of the season. So insert whoever it is. It's probably a team that's interested in Brees is a team that's out of it, a tanking team looking to get points off their roster. And the idea being, can I get a first from them? It's probably going to have to be a first uh, that may not be their one that they're tanking with. So that's another tricky thing. You may have to settle for, you know, the team that has three late firsts or three first, one of them being late, one of them being early, which is the one they're tanking with, and maybe another random one. You're probably going to have to settle for like the mid or the late one. They're not going to trade you their high first. Forget about that. If a team is looking at Jameer Gibbs or Bijan Robinson or a quarterback with their pick, most likely you're not getting that for Brees Hall. I wouldn't. There's no chance I would pay a top five or top six pick for Brees Hall. Not even close. But if I'm selling... I'm sitting here going, like, if I can get any 23 first, even if that ends up being the 109, 110, 111, 112, I'm fine with it, Uh, and try to get an extra running back back. Try to get one of those supplemental running backs to get thrown in. Even if it's a guy you go, well, I'm only going to be able to start a couple more times during the year, fine. You know, think about any of the names that potentially could pop up. We all know the names that happen week to week, right? Could be Deontay Foreman, Chuba Hubbard. You know, if that's the best you can get, at least you might be able to get a spot start out of them, especially because Chuba went down today. Maybe you get a spot start out of Deontay Foreman. So that's what you're thinking about. It's really just trying to get a patchwork together, your running back room to get some production for the rest of the year. But the key is getting that 23 first. Now, what is the move if you're not able to get a 23 first? Because what if the team that wants Brees only has their own 23 first? They're saying, well, I'm tanking with that pick. No interest in trading it for Brees. I'll potentially do a 24 first. What else do you ask for with the 24 first? I think with the 24 first, I'm okay taking a 24 first. 
and a decent running back if I can get that. Uh, really, you kind of got to fish around and go, can you get like a Miles Sanders in a 24 first? Something like that. I think a lot of people will just scoff at that trade going, no, I'm not getting enough. Listen, this is a, a process over players thing. Um, and I will say I have the advantage of playing in a lot of leagues. And I know a lot of people listening that listen to me over with Dynasty and Shield, they play in a lot of leagues. So it's very easy for them to go, okay, I have four shares of Brees Hall. Let me kind of go play around the market and see what I can do. Maybe I have one or two teams. I do. I have a couple of Brees Hall teams where I don't mind just holding him if I can't get what I want. No issue, because I'm probably not winning in those leagues anyway. So those are teams where I may consider, okay, here's my price. If you want it, he's yours. But if not, I'm fine holding. There's going to be other ones where, you know, I'm contending. He's helping me contend, just like a lot of young players are helping you contend. I'm motivated to sell in those leagues. And again, that's because I'm leveraging a portfolio. I can also take all of my shares of a player whenever something like this happens and kind of leverage all of those against each other. Okay, I have this player in seven leagues. I want to trade him away. Let me kind of shop them in all the ones that it makes sense. So maybe of those seven, five of them, I can shop them. And really, I'm indifferent as to which trade I take or which league of those five I trade them away. But if my goal is to trade away three of my five shares of Brees Hall after this injury, and I'm willing to trade all five, I can kind of take the three deals that I like the most. So I'm not really playing like two managers in a league against each other. I'm playing leagues against each other with the same portfolio player. So I think that's another option. And again, if you're playing in a portfolio, it's easier to do this. If you're not, you still have to look at it from a pragmatic perspective and say, okay, I'm sitting on an asset that is going to flatline unless I can absorb it. And more importantly, not just absorb it, but give up the potential flexibility of having that extra 24 first, you know, having that extra running back that maybe I could flip for a second, you know, depending on who I get. And I think one thing about the 24 first is you're going to start to see them be treated like the 23 first were last summer. Once the clock strikes midnight, this season ends, you're going to go into the 2023 off season and those picks are going to be really, really hard to get. They've already been really, really hard to get, but all the people willing to trade them for points, uh, those are likely going to be off the table at that point, or at least they're going to be more expensive. So I think a lot more people are going to start pivoting to 2024 picks. There's a lot of leagues where you can't trade 2024 picks yet. Those are going to open up, and there's going to be a lot of people that are focusing on those 24s. So you're going to probably see the same value spike because uh, you have people out there. Like you have people out there like Ray saying, you know what? Like the 24 class in ways is better than the 2023 class. And so like don't have any qualms about getting those 23 picks. So again, even getting a 24 pick as a rebuilding team yourself, the idea is what else can you maybe do with that pick? What else can you do with your roster construction in the offseason? Even if you have a lot of needs, maybe you need a quarterback. Maybe you need two quarterbacks. Maybe you have a bunch of 23 picks and are going to be looking to get some 24 picks. Or you're looking to kind of consolidate and buy some players with your picks. Again, it's going to be more liquid if you have a 24 first plus another piece you can maybe move and turn it into some other picks instead of Brees Hall. And I think there's going to be one more component to this that I haven't really thought through, and I'm sure we'll talk about it more in the Discord this week. This is an impactful injury, right? Like Brees Hall, we've seen Javante get hurt, J.K. Dobbins get hurt, Cam Akers get hurt, uh, but this is the worst one. You know, if he indeed has a torn ACL and he's going to miss a season... This is the worst one. This is kind of the, I don't want to say he's the chosen one because that's probably Bijan, honestly, but this is a guy that's literally vaulted up to RB1 faster than anybody ever has. Uh, and given how gross the running back landscape has been for a couple years to where it's still a lot of the same older guys from 2017 and 2018 that are carrying 
the position in Dynasty. This is a wake-up call, I think, for Dynasty players. A lot more people after this injury are going to be taking the approach of, I just can't trust running backs. I just simply can't trust any of them. Look, we've gotten Brees Hall taken away from us. Brees Hall, you know, we thought this couldn't happen necessarily to a rookie. We didn't want to think about it, but you're almost like, man, what else can go wrong at the position? And maybe it's just dumb luck. Maybe this is something that's just a fluke. It's just happened to strike to a lot of the running backs that we really, really liked over the last couple of years that happened to be maybe the next umbed comers at the position. And that got interrupted because of the ACL injuries. But I think this is going to be a big eye opener for the community. You know, Javante kind of started it. Well, Dobbins and Akers started it. And then Javante kind of continued it, but it was like, okay, fine. But then this one, I think is may seal the deal. There's going to be a lot of people that I've already seen it in chats on Twitter. I'm never trusting a running back again. You've taken Brees Hall away from us. I can't trust running backs anymore. I'll take them. I'll draft them for their production. But almost the the days of a running back being valued as a dynasty asset, an asset where you're going to play with that in the game of like day trading, it's gone. And it's going to impact the market in two different ways. Uh, One, I think just the sheer value of the position is going to go down. It's going to become more volatile. It's going to be very much like I talked about in the first week. What are you doing for me right now? What is your opportunity this upcoming week, this upcoming month, this upcoming season? That is going to largely be what dictates your dynasty value. And very, very few running backs are going to be like, well, they have such good talent and such good ability. All we need is time. All we need is to wait for maybe the opportunity of their production to come. And that's not going to exist anymore. Very, very, very few running backs. You're going to be able to say, okay, I'm drafting this player as an asset, and I just believe in them so much that all they need to be doing is getting opportunity, and then their value is going to be tied to not only the points they score, but man, how much I can trade them away. And I think that's going to be gone. That is going to be gone in Dynasty going forward. Almost everybody is going to start to adopt this idea of our running back is only as good as what they are doing for my current roster, which means a guy with a high ankle sprain, somebody that is out four to six to eight weeks, their value is going to crash. Players that are producing into their later years, you know, they're going to be catch 22s, but there's going to be more people that are going to go, all right, if I can get deals on these guys, I'm actually willing to buy running backs because you know what? I've accepted that all I'm doing is going on vacation, and I am buying a good time. That's it. I'm not looking for a bunch of extras. I'm not looking for, you know, memories that are going to last me forever. You know, I'm going, I want to just spend my money and get points out of it. And that's it. I think that's how a lot of people are going to start looking at running backs, which means the running back market is just going to be extremely volatile. It's going to be very reactionary. And we've already talked about that. We've seen how reactionary Dynasty is this year. But I think at running back, it's going to be extremely reactionary. What happened last week? Who got the touches? Who got the carries? Who scored the points? And then here's the crazy thing. Even when you see it happen, Josh Jacobs had a massive day today. I guarantee you most people are still sitting there going, man, I'm still wary of investing anything in Josh Jacobs. So it still becomes a gamble because you don't get credit for what a player produced last week or previous four weeks or what they've done thus far this season. It's literally a week-to-week proposition. So it's going to be a very interesting dynamic, but I think that's what's going to come out of this Brees injury 
isn't just going to be the Brees Hall injury itself. Like I said, I don't think it's as bad as the other ones that have happened. I'm charging a little bit of a higher price than I would have on uh, the prior injuries with Dobbins and with Akers and with Javante. But I do think the fallout of this injury is going to be a massive wake-up call for teams in terms of how they treat the position. So we have to think, how are we going to combat that? How are we going to actually go against the grain when we're going to get up in the summer of 2023, when everyone is doing their startups, when everyone is looking forward to the 2023 season, but it's going to be, just my prediction, the extreme of where everybody is treating the running back position like this. Everyone in your league is going to be looking at it like, okay, do I have enough running backs to get me by? Do I have enough to get me by the first couple weeks of the season? And then I'll reassess from there. So I think a lot of what has been working, what I talked about in the first podcast, what has been working for the last couple years uh, is going to largely take a hit because the strategy has just been so exposed in terms of, man, this just makes way too much sense. Even the folks that were all about, you know, just trying to beat everybody with as many hammer running backs as possible. Even some of those people are going, man, like, I just can't deal with this. You know, even I'm being worn down by the number of injuries and the randomness and some of the running backs that all they need is opportunity. They cost you nothing. You know, you can buy the Dion Jacksons and the Eno Benjamins of the world. You see them transact every single week on the market for a third or two thirds and you put them in your lineup and you're like, wow, they're outscoring guys that have 50 times their dynasty value. And really all it is, if that's all you're shooting for, is week-to-week points. Why ever put any long-term investment? I think this injury is going to be a major wake-up call, and a lot more people are going to start playing that way. So what do we need to do? And this is going to be a topic for a future episode. How do you go against the grain? If you're in a league where this is already happening, it's already been happening, people are already playing that way, Newsflash, a lot of the leagues that we play in uh, via the Dynasty and Chill community or the Destination Devi community are already doing this. So you get into those leagues and you're like, okay, this isn't going to be your typical league where, you know, this running back should be worth a first. You get in there and it's like the running back market. It's totally different. So how do you outmaneuver that? How do you outthink that? How do you get ahead of it? What's the strategy to combat that when it starts to become the common strategy? You already know it's the dominant strategy in terms of like what the numbers say or what the math says, but how do you combat that when you now have 100% of your people in your leagues that are also doing it? Because there's no advantage there. There is no advantage there to be had when every single person is viewing things through the same lens. So think about that. That's going to be a topic for the future shows. Uh, Maybe that's going to be like a live stream topic where we can kind of brainstorm back and forth and have people ask questions about that because I'm fascinated by that. I'm fascinated as we move into a world now where there's so much information and a lot of this, it's not just me covering this. There's a ton of people that are talking about this stuff. Maybe it's in different forms. uh, It's in different modes. It's in different capacities, but there's a lot of people that are kind of hinting that this is the way to play. Embrace the variance. Embrace the fact that it's unpredictable. Control what you can control and really just kind of let everything up to chance. Don't make big bets on something in the future that you really have no control under. And when you really think about it, the probabilities might not even be in your favor. So how do you combat that? 
How do you beat that when that's starting to become the way that most dynasty players are starting to think? So that's a topic for a future episode. Um, I did want to talk about quarterbacks briefly. It's not going to be as much as I had planned because I almost went... Well, I did go 30 minutes or more already talking about the Brees Hall situation. So I'll talk about quarterbacks just briefly, and then maybe we'll do a follow-up episode on that next week, diving a little bit more into both the fantasy efficiency and the current NFL efficiency. I'll rerun the numbers. I have them through week six, uh, but I'd like to run them through week seven and do a little bit of a comparison, kind of to see how they add up from a fantasy perspective uh, and a real-life NFL perspective. So I'll be back here again in 30 seconds. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the quarterbacks thus far through six weeks of this season. Welcome back, everybody. So for the second half of the episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about quarterback efficiency from an NFL perspective. And it's something that I've really tried to educate myself more over the last couple years, because uh, I do think there is a lot of value uh, to this when you're looking at dynasty and fantasy. Uh, more importantly, dynasty, because you're trying to look at how these things may translate from year to year, because it's not just the efficiency from an NFL perspective or even from a fantasy perspective, but it's also the efficiency compared to the price or the dynasty price. And that's part of where we can take stuff from the real NFL and look at that through a, a vision of many, many different data sets and whatnot, but also compare that to what the market is. And that's the one component that I don't really think there's anything out there that's able to integrate and measure quite like you know we can by just playing in a lot of dynasty leagues. You get a feel for what the market is like on players every day. Not just me that's playing in 57 dynasty leagues, but me and the entire Destination Devi Discord community and the entire Dynasty and Chill Patreon community. We have hundreds, even thousands of people in there that a lot of them are playing in many, many different leagues. So when you combine like the strength of everybody's data together, you start to get a really, really big sample size from a dynasty perspective. So we get a good pulse just based on the market there. And then you have other tools like KTC and you have even different sites that are doing ADP. Like you have a lot of tools out there to gauge what the market is like. So how do we use quarterback efficiency to our benefit there? We can kind of tell, you know, which quarterbacks are maybe more uh, sustainable from like a long-term perspective. If the NFL views them as a good quarterback or an efficient quarterback, maybe we're a little more confident in adjusting their dynasty value one way or the other. I think the other thing, and I'm still working on the best way to quantify this, but one of my hypotheses is that quarterback efficiency, and we're talking about passing efficiency, like I talked about last week with taking out any sort of rushing production and just looking at passing efficiency from a fantasy points lens, but I think passing efficiency from the quarterback uh, is generally what is driving the wide receiver production. Now, obviously, we already follow the idea that a receiver has to have a baseline level of talent to either get draft capital or to get snaps or to get on the field in the first place, right? We already agree with that. Once we've seen that passed, we have a pretty good idea that a receiver is going to get to play. They're going to get opportunity. But then the next thing you're going to look at is, does this receiver have the ability to earn targets? And that's why we talk about things like yards per route run or targets per route run or just overall market share or target share. Like we use those things to kind of measure like how good is a receiver? 
just without looking at what offense they're in, looking at what quarterback's throwing them the ball, none of that. How good is this receiver at integrating his services into an offense and being able to command X amount of targets or X amount of market share? I think that's a really good way to measure like how good a receiver is or maybe how good they could be. Or more importantly, you know, what are the range of outcomes for their actual fantasy numbers? So I think we do that pretty accurately for the wide receiver position. It's the position that people have done the most work in terms of diving into data uh, on scouting, on projecting rookies. Uh, We also know draft capital is really predictive for rookies as long as they're within certain ranges with draft capital. Like we feel really, really good about kind of projecting those guys for opportunity. Then the next thing we start looking at, well, what type of opportunity are they earning when they get on the field? But once we have that, then we start trying to figure out, okay, who are these receivers that are the true difference makers? I'm not going to talk about the warp data. Uh, If you want access to uh, Dynasty Barry's warp data, shout out to Dynasty Barry. He's done a great job of coming up with a system or a wins over replacement sheet that he's put together. Um, I know he's still kind of working on evolving that every single day, but he's done a great job at putting it together. It's available if you're in the Discord, uh, if you're in either the Destination Devi or the Dynasty and Chill Patreon community, uh, you get access to that. Uh, But he's kind of come up with a a warp system that allows us to look at, okay, what are the receivers, at least from a fantasy perspective, uh, that are producing wins or wins over replacement. So you can kind of figure out where the tiers line up when you look at this warp data. So I think once you have that, we get a really good idea of what the wide receiver landscape looks like. And if you go back to that second episode where I talked about the wide receiver production, you know, what are the baselines to hit those certain thresholds, you start to get this picture of what the wide receiver landscape looks like. And you really start to talk about, you know, where are these quote unquote like dead zones? You know, where are these like production zones where it's like, okay, I know the production zones are in this range. You know, I talked about it in that episode where it really starts to flatten off and you're in that, you know, wide receiver like 12 to wide receiver 40 range-ish. Let's just call it 12 to 36. But within those ranges, what are the players that you might want to bet on based on not only what they can do, so you're talking about their ability to earn targets, what is their career market share, what are some of their other numbers, like their targets per route run, their yards per route run, like how much are they producing on their own, Uh, especially with targets per route run and with their market share, how much are they earning themselves when they're on the field, regardless of how good of quality the passes are that they're getting, how good of quality their offense is, how good or bad the offensive efficiency is, what are they doing on their own? Once we have all of that in place, then we start to look at, okay, what quarterbacks have the efficiency to go along with it? And I think that's where we may be able to unlock some of the keys, not necessarily to know that, you know, Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen and Joe Burrow, like those guys are like the the most efficient quarterbacks in the league. I think generally we already know that. But then where can you strategize trying to find some quarterbacks, especially that might be a little bit undervalued? Maybe they have some hidden efficiency in there, but it's being masked by the fact that maybe they don't have the greatest weapons. Maybe they don't have the best offense going for them. Maybe they don't have the best offensive line. Like maybe their situation is holding them back. Then you have some others where you say, is their efficiency a product of the volume that they're getting? Look no further than looking at like market share for someone like Drake London or Kyle Pitts. Who cares if it's close to 30%? If it's 30% of 20 passes or less per week, who cares? So I think that's the other component where once you've kind of dialed in the good receivers, and we measure the good receivers by some of the things I was already talking about, then once you've figured out, okay, who are the efficient quarterbacks and what levels have they been able to achieve that efficiency at, then we can figure out 
what type of maybe volume can I project with the efficiency for this quarterback to produce in this certain type of range? Uh, if the volume does come with a quarterback and they maintain their efficiency, that's one where I can go, okay, I'm willing to kind of buy into that quarterback's weapons. And vice versa, you know, if you have a quarterback that is simply getting by with sheer volume, throwing the ball 50 times a game, uh, but they're super inefficient, you're probably looking at those guys and going, okay, the team is going to soon realize that the best thing we can do is not step back and throw 50 times with Joe Flacco. Like, that's not a way to win. And so we're going to have to change that. And a lot of times it comes with, we're going to change quarterbacks, maybe if it's a guy like Flacco. Obviously, he's not going to be a long-term starter. But I think more importantly, it's we're going to potentially look at different quarterbacks down the road, right? Like, I think efficiency is going to be something that we're going to look at and say, it's kind of predictive of whether guys keep jobs or whether they're not just moved from team to team or whether they're just bridge quarterbacks. And we know that when quarterbacks are rumored to lose their job or get benched or move to another spot, it impacts their dynasty value. So I just kind of want to look at the the numbers through six weeks, uh, look at the efficiency data and just try to figure out what we can glean from it. Uh, At the top, it's not really going to surprise you. At the bottom, it's not really going to surprise you. I think the biggest intriguing part for me is looking at the quarterbacks in the middle and kind of where we're viewing those guys from a dynasty lens and how it might differ from at least what they're doing through six weeks in the NFL. So let's just start at looking at some of these key numbers. And again, I'm not going to have time to probably go through all of these, uh, but I want to just give a baseline of what I'm talking about. Maybe I'll do a part two and start next week's episode by talking a little bit more about this. But let's just start with the first thing, which is EP or expected points added. You hear this thrown around a lot, uh, but how do we use it from a fantasy perspective? So we have to figure out first what it is. So EPA, expected points added, is essentially a calculation that is trying to figure out how many expected points were added on a given play by an offense. And since quarterbacks are essentially running the offense every single play, uh, you can calculate EPAs and it's slapped on for quarterbacks and it's basically being used as a quarterback stats. And basically what it is, is these are all based on expected points given models that have been created to talk about down and distance and yard line and the conditions of each play. And then you're looking at what that model said it should have been versus what actually took place. So you're calculating, you know, what are the expected points added by a quarterback who is on the field at all times when an offense is running a play. So that's what EPA is. So you're trying to measure, you know, how many expected points is this quarterback adding to his team per play. So then you get into the second number, which is CPOE or completion percentage above expected or over expected. And really, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's what's the percentage of completions that were expected to be completed based on, you know, the down and the distance of the throw versus what was actually completed. So again, they're measuring the quarterback's ability to basically be better than what was expected on a given pass play. And then when you put those together, you get a number, which is EPA plus CPOE composite. And it's a way to gauge quarterbacks, not just for the overall efficiency of their offense, you know, what were the expected points they added per play, uh, but then also looking at their completion percentage. And the reason that you do that, the reason why you combine the two is it's simply measuring the efficiency that you have per play, but it also is going to give you an idea of the type of style that a quarterback is using and what value it's actually bringing. Because obviously not all quarterbacks are created equal. You know, you're going to have some quarterbacks that are trying much more difficult throws. So in theory, the expected points added on those throws may be a little bit lower, but also the CPOE on those throws might be a little bit lower. So you're not going to over credit a quarterback for completing a really, really high number of low risk throws and vice versa. So that's the idea. You're trying to measure the quarterback's efficiency 
in what they're doing. And then to try to figure out a little bit more about what they're doing, uh, you can look at a couple other numbers, which I've also pulled up for quarterbacks and looking at not only their yards per attempt. So you're talking about like the number of yards that they are actually gaining per attempt. So you're just taking passing yards divided by the number of pass attempts, uh, but then also their throw a dot or how deep down the field their throws are going. And when you take those two numbers together, like you can look at YPA or yards per attempt, then you look at throw a dot and you can kind of figure out maybe what quarterbacks are benefiting the most uh, from yak or yards after the catch. And if you look at that, you might be able to kind of get a snapshot of, okay, how efficient is a quarterback, but then also how much are they getting from the players around them? You know, are there quarterbacks that look to be really, really efficient? Yet then you look at some of the numbers and you go, wow, they're benefiting a lot because of the yak of their wide receivers. And it goes hand in hand. Like you can't just take yak and say, well, just because there was a high number of yards after the catch on a play that the quarterback shouldn't get credit for it. And I'm curious to see if there's anything else out there that explains more about what goes into yak and how it's measured. I mean, we know how it's calculated, but how do we determine, you know, how much of it was with the receiver? Or how much was it due to the quarterback? But I definitely think it's a skill for a quarterback to throw a receiver into yak. You know, when you're talking about just ball placement or accuracy, like there can be yak that's had by the receiver. Yes, the receiver is the one that's gaining the yards after the catch, but it's because of the way the quarterback set them up that leads to it. But I do think it's a way to kind of look at, okay, what quarterbacks might appear to be super efficient, but they're also benefiting a lot from the yak of their receivers. I'm not sure exactly how to figure out how much of a yak gets attributed to a receiver or how much gets attributed to a quarterback, but I think it's a decent way to compare the yards per attempt and the average throw a dot because they do differ just slightly. So let's get into it. I mean, we've gone over 45 minutes and I haven't really given you any numbers, so I'm just going to dive right into it. I'm going to look at what does this data say uh, throughout the first six weeks. And again, I don't have it updated through week seven. Uh, it takes a little time to get it updated uh, through week seven, but I'll definitely get that to everybody and, and talk a little bit about it next week. Uh, but I'm going to first look at that EPA plus CPOE stat and just try to figure out what I can take away. Just my observations by looking at this data and how that relates to what my feel is on the dynasty market. I mean, I do have a couple different ADP sources pulled up and obviously you can go ahead and look at like keep trade cut while I'm talking about this. But really what I'm trying to spot in here is maybe finding some efficiency that's currently being masked or also find some inefficiency that might also be masked just based on the sheer number of volume by a quarterback. And that's kind of what I'm looking for with these efficiency numbers. So just to start, the EPA plus CPOE numbers thus far uh, through six weeks. And I'm just going to go down through the top 34. And the reason I went through the top 34 is I filtered for at least 75 pass attempts by a player. So if you didn't have 75 pass attempts, I didn't calculate the numbers because I don't think the sample size is big enough. But I'm just going to go down through the, the top 34 in this number and just see if there's anything that stands out to you. So from the top, Josh Allen is number one. Tua Tagovailoa, number two, Pat Mahomes, three, Geno Smith, Jalen Hurts, Lamar Jackson, Joe Burrow, Tom Brady, Derek Carr, and Jimmy Garoppolo round out the top 10. Next, Daniel Jones, Trevor Lawrence, Marcus Mariota, Andy Dalton, Justin Herbert, Ryan Tannehill, Jacoby Brissett, Kurt Cousins, Mac Jones, and Kenny Pickett. Mac Jones and Kenny Pickett are at 19 and 20, uh, and obviously they both have pretty limited sample sizes thus far. Uh, next, 21, Jameis Winston, 22, Aaron Rodgers, followed by Matt Stafford, Jared Goff, Kyler Murray, Matt Ryan, Russell Wilson, Mitch Trubisky, Joe Flacco, and Cooper Rush. And then finally, rounding out 31 through 34, Carson Wentz, Davis Mills, 
Justin Fields, and Baker Mayfield. So that is 1 through 34 EPA plus CPOE on the season through six weeks. So observations. I mean, again, go back, rewind a minute, listen to that list again, and see if there's anything that surprises you. And I'll take away a couple things from that, and I'll give you my observations in terms of what I'm seeing with these numbers. And again, this is probably the best way that at least I know of to measure efficiency for a quarterback from an NFL perspective without looking at any of those other factors that I talked about. So it doesn't necessarily explain why the efficiency is occurring, but at least you can get an idea of who has been the most efficient based on these numbers thus far. So my takeaways, like I said last week, Tua Tagovailoa, number two, I know he has a small sample size. He's only thrown 115 passes. He's only played three games, so a small sample size. But I said it last week based on his fantasy numbers, and this backs it up as well. Tua has been better than I expected. Uh, He has been better than I think we've given him credit for. I think a lot of people have immediately just jumped on to, well, he's being carried by Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddell. He's being carried by his offense specifically. Uh, He's not as good as what his numbers say. However, if you think about where his price is in Dynasty, I think it's even more deflated from where it was a couple weeks ago, and it's definitely more deflated after his second concussion. I mean, his ADP and DLF, is quarterback 11, but it feels like even there, there's a much bigger gap between a guy like Tua and the Jalen Hurts, Kyler Murray, Joe Burrow range. Feels like there's a gap between Tua and Trevor Lawrence, and Trevor Lawrence is QB8. So it just does kind of feel like he's a guy you can buy, and I'm not opposed to maybe buying into Tua. And again, this is before week seven, but I'm not opposed to buying into Tua a little bit. And I think part of it is his his price has gone down and his risk has gone up. And a lot of people on the market see him as a risk because of the concussion issue. Like another concussion, he could be out the rest of the year. But you can't really predict that. Like, I'm not going to say I don't really want Tua because I'm scared of a concussion. We've seen that before with like Brandon Cooks, Devontae Adams. Like people were swearing that their careers might be over because of concussions or one more hit away from having to retire. Pat Fryermuth two weeks ago, You already started seeing, man, he could be out for the year. That's his third concussion in a matter of like, you know, 55 months. Like, what are we going to do here? But then maybe it's a little bit overblown. We can't predict that. So I'm not going to downgrade Tua too much. And I think his market price is probably reasonable. The other ones after that, I mean, Geno Smith, quarterback four. I think that's one that I talked about last week as being by Geno Smith. If you want the NFL efficiency numbers are there. Uh, He's doing it on a little bit lower number of attempts. Uh, That's something to also look at is these guys that are doing this on a very low number of attempts. The sample size is, you know, maybe not enough for us to say, okay, this is for sure what a player is. So I think two is a little risky from that regard. Geno Smith, definitely a little risky from that regard. Only 188 attempts. You know, if you at his career numbers, he's nowhere close that. So kind of buyer we bear, but he's one that intrigues me a little bit. And then you have Jalen Hurts and Lamar Jackson coming in at six and seven. All I'll say is these numbers say Jalen Hurts and Lamar Jackson. There is a reason that people will say they can be the quarterback one in fantasy because they can. Their passing efficiency is there. You hear it thrown around all the time. Well, Jalen Hurts and Lamar Jackson aren't that great at passing. These numbers speak differently. These numbers say something different than that. And what it tells me is those guys are already really expensive, but it also tells me that I'm not really scared about fading their weapons. You know, I'm not scared about buying a guy like Devontae Smith. I'm not scared about buying a guy like Rashad Bateman. They're going to have bad games, but I think you can look at those players through a lens of, all right, they're attached to efficient quarterbacks. I mean, sure, those guys are going to steal some of the points with their rushing, 
but they're efficient passers. Like I want parts of the passing offense, not just Lamar Jackson or Jalen Hurts, because they can score a lot of points. I want parts of their passing offense. After that, you go down QB 10 thus far, Jimmy Garoppolo, only in 148 attempts. But again, Jimmy Garoppolo was in the top 15 last year. So again, we're now at a point where Jimmy Garoppolo is going to start the rest of the year. They just added Christian McCaffrey. These numbers tell me that Jimmy Garoppolo is a guy that is probably a lot better than we give him credit for. We kind of knock him, well, he can't win in the playoffs. He makes some boneheaded mistakes. But ultimately, these numbers say Jimmy Garoppolo is somebody that you can buy into. So I think we look at his weapons, Christian McCaffrey now with Debo, with Ayuk, with George Kittle. Is he going to be able to support four of those guys? Probably not, just because I don't think the volume ideally is going to be high enough to do that. But don't worry about the efficiency. It's not a Jimmy G problem. If anything, this is the classic example, kind of like the ones that people make with Tua, of the weapons are probably elevating Jimmy G up into this efficiency range. Uh, But at the same time, you have to give him some credit for being this efficient yet again. And through the five games that he's played, he's right there. The other ones that stand out to me, and I think this is for the negative, you see Marcus Mariota at quarterback 13 in terms of CPA or EPA plus CPOE. And you see Ryan Tannehill at 16. Here's the problem. We already kind of know that those guys are the even poorer versions of Jimmy Garoppolo or even poorer versions of Geno Smith. Like their goal is to not pass. We already know that. We've seen enough from those guys. I mean, Mariota today in a game where they're down, and I know I'm not talking about you know anything past six weeks with this data, but we saw it today. A game where you thought they would have to pass, and he still only passed 13 times. So that's where I'm going like these guys, we already know that their efficiency is probably a product of the fact that they're not throwing a lot. And that scares me because really what I want is I want good efficiency and just give me average volume, give me the potential to have volume spikes in a given week, in a given game, not we're going to do everything we can to keep the volume low. And I think that's something you see with Tannehill as well. I mean, you saw that in 2019 with Tannehill and in 2020 with Tannehill. Tannehill was one of the top five efficiency quarterbacks in the league in 2019 and 2020. He also had really low volume and he had Derrick Henry healthy. 2021, you take away Derrick Henry, his pass volume goes way up, his efficiency goes way down. I think we have a big enough sample size on Tannehill to say he is a product of what we call like an optimization system where you only want to throw him probably 25 to 30 times max. When he's in that range, he can be very efficient. When he starts to exceed that range, that's when you start to get in trouble. When you start seeing them play from behind or play without a running game, that's when he gets into trouble. So you want to be a little more hesitant to buy into like the weapons with Ryan Tannehill because of these numbers, even though the efficiency numbers say you know he's better than probably other quarterbacks you think should be better than him. Uh, it's mostly because they're they're probably just optimizing his efficiency better by lowering his volume. Then you get a couple others. Like next up, you have Jacoby Brissett. You have Kirk Cousins. Like those guys have average efficiency, but they're also doing it on really high volume. So like Kirk Cousins thus far, Kirk Cousins is averaging like 37 pass attempts or more per game. He's been on the higher end for a while now, which is why I think Kirk Cousins is extremely undervalued. It's why we've seen guys like Kirk Cousins continue to produce fantasy players, not just Justin Jefferson, but Adam Thielen multiple times, 
Stefan Diggs. I mean, we know those guys are good players, but it's not an accident that Kirk Cousins has produced multiple high-end wide receiver seasons with multiple players over like a seven or eight year span. He did it in Washington before he went to Minnesota. So Kirk Cousins is good. Is he good enough to win a Super Bowl? I don't know, but there's a reason why we sit there and look at him and say, okay, I think his efficiency is good enough to keep him having a job continually, but he's also one of those offenses, especially with their new offensive coordinator, that you're willing to bet on the weapons because historically he's extremely efficient. And then Mac Jones. Mac Jones is right behind Kirk Cousins at quarterback 19. Kenny Pickett is at quarterback 20. I mentioned those two specifically because those are the young guys. I think those are the ones where people kind of wonder, well, what are these guys? Mac Jones last year uh, was in the top 18. Very good for a rookie. Kenny Pickett, I don't know if he's going to finish here. But again, these are positive signs for both Mac Jones and Kenny Pickett. And Ray's talked about it a little bit, like the difference between Bailey Zappi and Mac Jones and what they've been asking Mac Jones to do before he got injured his efficiency is still there. Could it be better? Yeah. Is it a little bit worse than what it was last year? Yes. But I've seen enough from Mac Jones just looking at these numbers where that is a, I don't want to say he is an elevator for everybody around him, but he's a guy where if you surround him with some good players, I'm going to say I'm confident that Mac Jones can help support those good players. He's efficient enough that I want pieces of a Mac Jones-led offense, especially if it's one where we start seeing a little bit more volume. If we start seeing 35 pass attempts a game, I want a Mac Jones offense. Now, do I necessarily want Mac Jones more than others? Not necessarily, but if you told me Mac Jones becomes like another Derek Carr or another Kirk Cousins, I think that's exactly what he can be. And there's been a lot of times where you wanted the players on those offenses. They're good enough to support the weapons when the infrastructure is there. Below this, you know, this is where it gets a little wonky for me because you have Jameis Winston, QB 21, uh, basically a a big dip from where he was last year. I know, again, a small sample size with Winston because he's only played three games. But here's where the trouble starts to arise. And this is what's a little concerning to me. Aaron Rodgers was top three in the league the last couple years, and now he is down at quarterback 22. And so my takeaway with that, along with Matt Stafford at quarterback 23, Kyler Murray at quarterback 25, and Russell Wilson at quarterback 27. So what these numbers say is basically those guys are pretty much as bad as what they've seemed like they are, and their fantasy numbers reflect it. Obviously, with somebody like Kyler, he's made up for it with the rushing, but it makes me a little more concerned looking at this. And again, it's only six weeks. But you kind of expected the numbers for these guys to be higher, especially Rodgers, especially Russell Wilson, honestly, all four of them. If you look at these numbers from last year, all of these guys were inside the top 15. A lot of them were inside the top 10. Kyler Murray was awesome last year. Matt Stafford was really good last year. Aaron Rodgers was incredible last year. You know, Russell Wilson was the worst, but even last year, Russell Wilson was around league average. And historically, he's been really good. So these numbers kind of tell me that these guys are as bad as they're showing. And you feel it not only on your fantasy teams, uh, but from a real-life perspective, they're not as good. And maybe you can say with Rodgers, it might be, well, his weapons aren't really helping him all that much. But again, this isn't really a weapon discussion. This is something we're trying to figure out. What are these guys bringing to the table on a per-play basis? And then for the weapons, we're looking at the weapons around them going, okay, who are the elevators? Who are the guys where I go, okay, this is a a wide receiver three on an Aaron Rodgers offense. Like I want that guy over basically the same exact player that's in another situation. We're trying to figure out like, where do we want to maybe add the tight end as a streamer or stack the number three receiver on a team? That's kind of how I'm looking at these. And so these are concerning. 
like these numbers with Rodgers, with Stafford, with Kyler Murray, with Russell Wilson, those are the four that are definitely, definitely concerning to me in terms of not just their dynasty value, not just their fantasy production, but also, you know, how much of elevators are they going forward, especially the older guys? You know, maybe Kyler bounces back a little bit. If there's one I had to bet on, it would be him. Maybe Russell Wilson next. But I think it's fair to say Rodgers, Stafford, and Russell Wilson, like these numbers reflect that they are worse than last year, far worse. And so that's a little concerning when you're starting to impact their dynasty value. But also, maybe we have to adjust a little bit to our expectations with some of the peripheral options on these teams. So you're talking about guys like Robert Tanyan or guys like Allen Robinson or Romeo Dubs or Jerry Judy. Like before the year, we looked at those players and go, well, you know, they're not that different than many, many others but they're with quarterbacks that can elevate them. And these numbers say differently. These numbers say that these guys are not elevating. You know, in fact, they're they're almost doing the opposite. And so I think that where you can take away some stuff from these numbers is look at some of those quarterbacks that are a little bit higher. You know, go go being willing to buy into a guy like Brandon Ayuk. Even though if there's a lot of weapons to feed in San Francisco, the numbers with like Jimmy Garoppolo say that I would rather have that than a Russell Wilson target. You know, I would rather have that than an Aaron Rodgers target. So think about it that way. That's how I'm going to use these efficiency numbers going forward. Obviously, again, a small sample size, only six weeks. Uh, but I think this is important to look at as we go throughout the season and say, okay, who might be the elevators the rest of the season? Who might be the elevators of the offense going into next year? Where might be, there be some dead spots where we can find some value? You know, maybe I'm, I want to get into like the number two receiver next year on the Patriots because of what I'm seeing from Mac Jones. And we know that's probably going to be just another guy, but I'd rather have that. That's where I'm going to break my ties. So that's kind of what I take away from this data, again, is being able to kind of separate what offenses I want to stack, which quarterbacks I want to ride. And then just from an NFL perspective, you have to figure if the efficiency is there and an NFL team knows they have an efficient quarterback, what they're going to constantly be doing is trying to raise the volume and maintain as much efficiency as possible. So I look at this and say, okay, if I see a guy like Kenny Pickett, who is this efficient as a rookie, it only makes sense to continue to put more on his plate, continue to let him throw more and more and more until they kind of find that breaking point where, okay, he can't maintain his efficiency at more than 33 pass attempts a game or roughly in that range. You know, that's kind of how you measure this in terms of like volume versus efficiency. Because we already talked about like with Tannehill, when the volume goes too high, the efficiency drops. And then finally, we couldn't do this without covering the very, very bottom uh, so I ended with Russell Wilson at QB 27. Everybody after that, it's kind of funny. You have Mitch Trubisky at 28, Joe Flacco at 29, Cooper Rush at 30. All of those guys have been benched. Then you get down below that, and these are the four quarterbacks where you look at this and say, we already know these guys are bad, but when these numbers that have nothing to do with fantasy production, when they're really bad, it really kind of tells you you have bad quarterbacks. You have Carson Wentz. Davis Mills, Justin Fields, and Baker Mayfield round out the bottom. So 31 through 34, Wentz, Mills, Fields, and Baker Mayfield. I talked last week about Justin Fields, that he's over 40% rushing share. Uh, so he can run. He can put up fantasy points. Carson Wentz historically can put up fantasy points. But it's crystal clear, both of those guys are not good. They may put up fantasy numbers. But buyer beware when you buy into a guy like Justin Fields or you buy into a guy like Carson Wentz because they are giving you fantasy production. The reality is they're basically just kind of on borrowed time. Like the NFL is going to sniff it out and go, these guys are bad quarterbacks. These guys are actually bringing us negative value. It's not exactly warp, but they're not helping us. They're hurting us. 
So we have to be able to find a better quarterback. So the the numbers from fantasy perspective can be misleading. We can look at like Carson Wentz and say, oh, he's a top 15 quarterback. A lot of that's going to be based on the fact that he has 232 pass attempts through six games. He's throwing it more than others. He's averaging 39 pass attempts a game. If that doesn't sustain, the efficiency is probably going to still be bad, but the volume is going to be lower. If you lower his volume by 20%, you know, you take away 40 of his pass attempts, he's nowhere near in the top 20 in fantasy quarterbacks. So just kind of get an idea of that's what's making up their fantasy production. With Fields, it's not the volume, it's the running. It's simply that. It's his running. He's running, he's making up points on the ground. So really, as long as Fields can stay a quarterback and his efficiency can maintain really, really low numbers while staying a quarterback, sure, he's going to run, he's going to put up fantasy points, but nothing he's doing is going to lead to him having a job in the future. And then Davis Mills, Baker Mayfield, Baker Mayfield's already on his way out. Effectively, he's been benched, even though he got hurt. I'm not sure he gets his job back. Uh, And then Davis Mills, Davis Mills, he's a poison pill. You know, he's bad. He's going to get replaced. They have no choice. He's too, he's one of the worst quarterbacks in the league. So it might appear that he's okay, uh, but these numbers speak differently. Davis Mills is definitely a guy that you're out on. And unfortunately for the Texans weapons, um, not a guy at all that's going to be able to elevate any of the players around him for the rest of the season. So we're at an hour and four. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up here. Um, I do want to dive into a little bit more of this data next week, um, looking at the average throw depth and the YPA. Uh, where you can use that is you can really start to look at, okay, I know these quarterbacks are efficient, uh, but they're efficient on what types of targets? Like, are they efficient while also throwing the ball down the field? Are they efficient on a high YPA? Are they efficient on a high A dot? Then you can start looking at the difference between the two, uh, which quarterbacks are benefiting the most from yards after the catch. Uh, then we can kind of look at which one do we maybe want to invest in, knowing we have some efficiency, but we also have you know, maybe some high yards per attempt. We have some high number of air yards that these quarterbacks are creating. Like those things make me want to say, these are the ones I want to invest in. And that's where I want to buy peripheral weapons on those teams. So we'll talk about that next week. Uh, I know it went a little long. I didn't plan on doing the Brees Hall stuff, but I think that discussion is really, really important uh, because injuries are going to happen. Injuries to young players are going to happen. Injuries to running backs are going to happen. And I think having a plan of action of how to operate immediately when it takes place, don't wait. Don't wait two weeks for there to be 300 podcasts or YouTube shows or articles talking about what to do with Brees Hall. Act. Act within the next 24 hours. Act within the next 48 hours. You know, plant your flag on the strategy. Uh, Either embrace it or go to the opposite of what I'm talking about. If you want to buy him, fine. But I think the best time to act is right away. You normally you'd say, let me let things settle in and see what happens. No, I think the edge is enacting within the first 72 hours, right when the clock strikes midnight on Monday night. MFL or whatever rolls over into the next week, that's the time to start sending out those trades. That's the time to act. Don't wait until things settle, then everything levels off, then it might be harder to get some action. Because obviously everybody that wants to have action is probably doing it right away. There's a lot of other people that go, you know, I'm not really interested in making a move one way or the other. So I think that's my advice. Act fast. Be the first to the market, whether that's the buy or the sell, and usually that's going to be beneficial uh, to your dynasty team. So with that, I'll go ahead and sign off. Um, I know there was a lot. Next week, we'll cover one more episode on quarterbacks, talk about the quarterback landscape, uh, and talk about the impact of the 2023 class. I'll make some predictions, might even grab like a mock draft and talk that through uh, just based on where the quarterbacks are being mocked to go, uh, and then talk a little bit about the quarterback landscape after we go through the remaining efficiency numbers that I have gathered. So as always, you can find me on Twitter at Charles Chill FFB, the Destination Devi group over on Patreon at patreon.com slash all gas. Uh, join the Discord. It's awesome. There's different tiers. 
Uh, great discussion in there. Um, I'm always in there available, gosh, hours upon hours every single day uh, in the Heisman tier. Uh, if there's slots available, uh, definitely would be something that would be good if you could grab one of those Heisman slots. It's awesome. The interaction over there is amazing. Uh, but just in general, join the Patreon, patreon.com slash allgas. Join the Discord. Uh, my Patreon, where you can also find me basically all the time, patreon.com slash dynastyandchill. We have a group me chat, uh, a lot of extra bonus content over there. All my old Dynasty and Chill content uh, is over there as well. Uh, check out the YouTube channel at Trades in Five. It's not affiliated with Destination Devi, but that is my YouTube channel uh, that I run with Shane Manila and Clay Mosley. Uh, Trades in Five. It's YouTube only content, but we do weekly live streams, take trade questions. It's mostly focused on just strategy and trades. But check it out on YouTube uh, at Trades in Five. And then finally, check out the Destination Devi newsletter. Uh, you can find the newsletter every single week at allgas.beehive.com. And there's weekly content over there on betting, dynasty, DFS, redraft, everything you can think of from all the Destination Devi team contributing once a week to that newsletter. So sign up using your email and get content right before every single weekend. So until next week, I appreciate everybody, all the listeners that have checked out the first four episodes. Again, there will be live streaming at some point on YouTube, definitely in the off season when I have time to kind of digest everything, go live on Sunday nights, talk about what's going on in Dynasty. And just quite frankly, we're not going to be in the grind of the season to where we're going to have to be reacting to things constantly on the fly. So that will be a little more chill and laid back to do live streaming in the off season every Sunday night. That's my plan. Uh, but for now, in terms of live streaming this show, We'll see, but I'll make sure to let everybody know when I do it, and I'll make sure that we announce when it's going to happen so everyone can tune in uh, to the YouTube live stream. So with that, I'll go ahead and sign off, and I'll catch you on the next episode. Ain't